0: You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other in Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Hey, good morning, guys. It's great to be with you. My name is Matt and I'm the Leadership Development Pastor here at Midtown. Next week is my three year anniversary of being on staff at the church. I absolutely love it. It's been so long since I got to preach here at Midtown in person. Uh, so this is great. Uh, let's just dive right in. I want to start this morning uh, by stealing an opener from David Foster Wallace's 2005 commencement address at Kenyon College, uh, which you, you may know. I, I highly recommend you listen to it and make a really interesting companion to today's teaching. The, the speech is called, This is Water. And he opens with what he calls a didactic little parable-ish story. So here's a didactic little parable-ish story. Two young fish were swimming along one day, and they happened to meet an older fish. And the older fish says to them, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a little bit, and eventually one turns to the other and says, what the hell is water? Now, I think about this story a lot. Um, The point of the story basically is is that like the most obvious and the most important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see or the hardest to perceive or be aware of or think about or talk about. And we're finishing this short sermon series in Ephesians this week and all through the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, the author, is trying to wake his readers up to the water that we're all swimming in. So, he's trying to express these very important spiritual realities, the most important realities, realities which are all around us at all times. And he's explaining these realities to his readers so that they will understand them. uh, And then, so that once they understand them, they can live in alignment with them. And so, specifically this morning, we're going to be talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And before we get that, or before we get into the text, I want to review some of Paul's background and explain a little bit about how he thinks because if you get that then the bulk of the passage this morning pretty much explains itself and then you also get the added benefit of understanding paul better as an author so that you can be a better informed and more empowered reader of scripture for yourself so that's what i'm trying to do this morning i want to start by talking about the water like what is water for paul um water for paul is this paul has an open view of history He has an open view of history. Now, here's what that means. It means that Paul's worldview is one in which there are things happening internal to human history. And then there are also the ways in which forces which are external to human history act upon the world. Specifically, God who is recreating the world and the powers of darkness which are corrupting the world. Okay, so there's stuff happening internal to human history that's making things happen, and then there's stuff happening external to human history, which acts upon human history. So in other words, Paul's worldview is not anthropocentric. It's not human-centered. It's theocentric. It's God-centered. And so what that means is that the most important realities are not internal to human history. So human behavior, politics and government, sociological and psychological factors, those are actually not the most important realities. The most important realities are external to history and act upon history. And Paul's story is, I was acted upon. So let's look at this passage uh, from earlier in Ephesians, from chapter 2, and you'll see what I mean. This is Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. And I want you to notice the way that Paul is highlighting the way forces external to human history are acting upon human history. So, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, he says, As for you, meaning Gentile Christians, Christians from a non Jewish background, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when, listen closely, you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the Spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So you see that there's an agent external to human history that has acted upon these people who are internal to human history. You tracking with me? So they've been acted upon by this evil agent. But God says, all of us, meaning the, the Christians from a Jewish background, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But... Because of his great love for us, listen closely again, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So you see it again? Paul is saying also we've been acted upon by another agent who is external to human history. That agent is God, and through his grace he has acted upon us, and he has made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our sins. So Paul is doing this all through the letter. He's trying to call attention to the thing behind the thing, right? Like there's the physical, internal to human history reality that we all can readily see and interact with, and it's very apparent and available and tangible to us. But then behind that thing, there's the real thing, which is the more important reality, which is the spiritual reality. So this is, it's a little galaxy brain, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put the cookies on the bottom shelf here. So let's, let's think. How did Paul come to think this way? Like if this is Paul's worldview, and, the, and this, this is sort of what you have to get on board with in order to read him and understand what he's trying to tell us about God, then how did Paul come to think this way? Paul really interestingly, um, like I have just had kind of a lifelong fascination with Paul. He's the author of scripture who we know the most about. I mean, it's just, and non-Christian and Christian scholars alike who study Paul agree Paul believed this. Like, Paul believed that he was acted upon by an external reality. So you kind of have to meet Paul um, on Paul's level, or you kind of have to get on the same page with him to get what he's saying. How did he come to think this way? Well, in his background, Paul, prior to his first encounter with Jesus, was a practicing Jew. He was an expert in the Jewish text. He was personally educated by the most important Jewish teacher of his time. So Paul was this rising star in the world of first-century Judaism. And Paul was so committed to protecting the purity of the Jewish religion against Greco-Roman influence that he persecuted those who he saw as threatening that purity, namely the first followers of Jesus. And Paul was a zealot in his early life, and he was involved in this group that perpetrated religious violence in first-century Palestine. And then one day, while he's out on the job, God radically interrupts his life. I mean, that's probably actually putting it mildly. Like, like, God invades Paul's reality, shatters it, and redefines it. And Paul's associate, Luke, records this story. It's found in Acts chapter 9. And basically, he tells us that Paul is on his way to Damascus from Jerusalem uh, with his crew, and then out of nowhere, the crucified and resurrected Jesus appeared to him in a blinding light, which knocked Paul to the ground. And Jesus asks Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who are you? Fair question. And Jesus answers, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus is like, I am once again asking you, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus leaves Paul and only Paul blind. So Paul's with his whole crew, there's a flash of light, but Paul is the only one who struck blind. In other words, Paul was a target. In other words, this was, this was a hit on Paul. Jesus was coming after Paul. Paul's blind for three days, and then a man named Ananias prays for him. Luke says that something like scales fall off of Paul's eyes. Paul is baptized, and then the text tells us that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I would use two words to describe this whole episode in Paul's life, from his first encounter with Jesus to his baptism and his receiving the Holy Spirit. The two words I would use are traumatic and apocalyptic. Traumatic and apocalyptic. Now, I don't want to be glib about trauma and make light, like, I'm not trying to use that word lightly. I'm using these in very technical, precise ways, so I'm I'm not trying to be glib about trauma. But it's traumatic in the sense that it overwhelmed Paul's religious categories and it altered the way he perceived the world for the rest of his life. Like he, once this had happened to him, he could not go back to the way it was before. He could not go back to the way he thought before. In light of God's revelation to him in Christ through the Spirit, Paul had to go and rethink everything that he thought he knew. So, in that sense, it's traumatic, marked him for life. He can never go back to the way it was before. And it's also apocalyptic. Apocalypse is a Greek word that means revealing or revelation. And so, God reveals things to Paul in this moment. What was revealed to Paul? At least three things. The first thing that's revealed to Paul is that Jesus is God, Jesus is God. So Paul had a belief in the Jewish God. He had a monotheistic belief in God, but he was persecuting Jesus. But if Jesus can appear out of the heavens with a blinding light that blinds you and can speak to you when apparently he, he, he had been crucified, then Paul is going, okay, clearly, this, clearly Jesus is involved with God somehow. So Jesus is God. The second thing that God reveals to Paul is that God reveals God. In Jesus Christ. God reveals God in Jesus Christ. So in other words, God is in charge of how we know about God. And God's definitive statement of what God is like is the embodied life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So God reveals God through Jesus Christ. And then lastly, um, or sorry, God reveals God in Jesus Christ. And then lastly, God God reveals God in Jesus Christ through God. God reveals God through God. That is, God reveals God in Jesus Christ through a work of the Holy Spirit, who is also God and is also the Holy Spirit, which at this point had filled Paul. So Paul is struck by this revelation of a triune God whose definitive statement concerning itself is the embodied life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he is then filled and empowered by another person in this triune God, the Holy Spirit. And Paul's understanding coming out of this moment, what's interesting is you can look at how his writings develop over the course of his life, and you can kind of get an idea of how was Paul working to understand this. What was the Holy Spirit telling him about this? Paul's understanding coming out of this moment is that believers in Jesus have been made alive with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, been given a new spiritual identity, and then given all the spiritual power we need in order to be able to notice and participate in the ways in which God is acting upon the world. Tracking with me so far? Okay, I think this is what's most exciting to Paul about the gospel, I think this is what he's really jazzed about. So for Paul, the gospel is not just about the forgiveness of sins. In fact, it's not even mostly about the forgiveness of sins. And that's very important, but it's not the only thing that Paul is on about. Like what makes Paul so excited about the gospel is the provision of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit can transform our being and give us identity, power, and abilities that we did not previously possess. So it's not just that God can and will forgive us for being evil. It's that God also has every intention of transforming our lives from the inside out through the Holy Spirit to turn us into people who are actually righteous, whose lives are marked by what Paul calls in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Self-control. Gentleness. I left out out gentleness. (laughs) So in light of all this, understanding that Paul's trying to get us to be aware of the spiritual realities, which are external to human history and act upon it. In light of the revelation of God's self in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. In light of the reality of the indwelling and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now let's look at our text for this morning. Ephesians 5. And we're going to do verses 1 through 21. I'm going to move quickly through the first few sections, and then we're going to camp out in the final section. So here's what Paul says, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. He says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, or live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So I just want to point out a couple things from this first section. Notice that Paul calls them dearly loved children. Dearly loved children. Dearly loved children is an identity that they did not have before, that they now have because of the Holy Spirit. Like Paul writes about, he uses the metaphor of adoption, a lot in his writings to talk about the way that we come into God's family. And when Paul talks about this adoption, he talks about being adopted as sons. That's the way he describes it in Romans 8. Through the Spirit, we received the adoption as sons. The as sons thing is important because Paul is working in a first century Greco-Roman culture in which being adopted as a son meant something different than being adopted as a daughter or being adopted as a slave or being adopted as something else. Paul's point is that when we are adopted into God's family, we are adopted into it with the full privileges of being in God's family, irrespective of our background or whatever we had done before. And that happens, he says, through a work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I also want you to notice in this verse, notice how Christ is mediating and positioning himself between God and humankind. So Christ reveals God. He represents God to us. And then also Christ represents us to God in his substitutionary death on our behalf and in our place. And so this is what it means to walk in the way of love, to follow God's example. We follow Christ's example because Christ is definite. God's, I'm going to start this whole sentence over again. <laughs> to walk in the way of love means to follow Christ's example. Because Jesus Christ is the definitive revelation of this God. So, to follow God's example, we follow Jesus Christ's example. And what we see in Jesus Christ's example, if we want to live like Him, then we are being called to represent God in this world by displaying God's character to the world, something we can only do through the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the gospel of His kingdom, something we can only do through the power of the Holy Spirit and giving our lives away for the good of others, something we can only do through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is going to go on to demonstrate then that imitating Christ requires a transformation of both the way that we relate to God and the way that we relate to people. So let's look at the next batch of verses. This is verses 3 to 7. He says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, Or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. So in the last couple sermons in this series, we've noticed that Paul is singling out specific behaviors. And part of what I wanted to do with the introduction talking about his background is to give you an idea of why he's on about these behaviors. Like, why is he zeroing in on these Is it because Paul is just a moralizer? No. It's because Paul can see the thing behind the thing. Paul can see the spiritual reality at work. And if you could see the way that Paul sees, then you would understand why Paul says what Paul says, right? So the point of this section is not the behaviors themselves per se. I mean, they're important and we'll talk about them. But the point is what the behaviors represent because the, what the behaviors represent is that in the spiritual reality, what's happening is it's, it's not just behaviors internal to history between me and a person. There's a spiritual reality at work. And the spiritual reality is that Paul, Paul's saying, when we engage in these behaviors, we are colluding with the powers of darkness. That's why Paul is taking this so seriously. He understands there are good forces, God, acting upon the world. There are evil forces acting upon the world. And so when you participate in this, you are teaming up with this. You are colluding with, evil, with dark powers, evil forces. So Paul has, I think, a specific feature of Greco-Roman life in mind in these verses where he's drawing examples from. And I think he's working with the idea of the pagan temples. Um, I have a couple pictures I want to show you. These are from... Uh, from Ephesus. This is, this is an artist rendering. Okay, this, this doesn't exist anymore. But this is the Artemision. The Artemision. And the Artemision was the temple in Ephesus, one of the wonders of the ancient world, where people would come, not just from this area of Asia Minor, but from all over. It was a massive tourist destination. And this is where they would go to worship the goddess Artemis Ephesia. Now, Artemis' Ephesia was a kind of blend between, don't go to the statue yet, um, was, was kind of a blend between the Greek deity Artemis and an Asian mother goddess that they, they kind of put together. And the Artemision was the largest building in the world at this time. It looks a lot like the Parthenon uh, because I guess the, the ancient Greeks weren't so creative with building their temples. Um, I thought someone might laugh at that, it's okay. Maybe someone on Zoom did. Um, So it looks like the Parthenon is four times bigger than the Parthenon. Um, And at the time, it was also the most important financial institution in Asia. Because this this deity, this false god, Artemis Ephesia, was so respected and so revered in this region that the temple was safe. Like, people just didn't do crime at the temple. And so wealthy folks, kings and, and other influential people, would come and they would store their money at this temple. So it was functioning like a centralized bank. At this time, okay. Now we can look at, at the picture of the statue of Artemis Ephesia. This is Artemis. I don't know if you can see the statue, but Artemis has a very distinctive feature, or a set of features. Um, Artemis was was seen as a fertility goddess, or Artemis Ephesia was was seen as a fertility goddess, and so sex is like a, a super prominent feature of Artemis worship at this time. Very, very prominent. Once a year, there was a festival where the citizens of Ephesus would take the statue of Artemis from the temple and take it down to the sea and would wash it and clean it off. And they believed that this restored Artemis' virginity. And then as they carried the, te- the statue back from the sea into the temple, there was sort of this mobile sexual festival, a sextival maybe, Um, where they, as they're taking this, this idol back into the temple, they're also engaging in sexual behaviors with one another. And that was what you were supposed to do as worship to Artemis. The idea was take Artemis, the statue down to the sea, wash her, restore her virginity, and then take it away again on the way back to the temple. Um, This washing of water imagery, by the way, pops up again later in this chapter when Paul talks about husbands and wives. So just be looking out for that when we come back to Ephesians after the Easter season. But so when Paul looks at this, when he looks at Artemis' worship, and he he sees sexuality and greed mingled together, and he begins to see them as related impulses, and he sees them both as expressions of idolatry. So here's the way this works. Greed puts me at the center of my worldview, right? So greed is not God is at the center of my worldview, external reality. Greed is I'm at the center of my worldview, internal reality. Greed says the most important realities in my life are my wealth, my pleasure, my influence, my comfort, my security, my what have you, whatever money brings to you, that's the most important reality. But those aren't the most important realities. God is the most important reality. And so greed is idolatry because it's about how I can resource myself for pleasure and power and security versus how I receive those things from God. And this is a big point of contention between Paul and the culture that he's trying to engage with the gospel. And sexual immorality is the same. Sexual immorality is embodied greed. It's embodied greed. So sex is meant to be a worshipful function of marriage which celebrates the oneness of Christ in the church. So as a result, any sexual behavior which is not that is idolatry. Because sex is by by its nature worship. And so if the worship of my sexual behavior is not pointed at God, then it is pointed somewhere else. And that's idolatry. Uh, And so sexual immorality says this, the most important reality is my pleasure or my perceived intimacy with this other person, irrespective of whatever spiritual consequences of my actions on myself or on the other person might be. That's greed. It's embodied greed in the form of sexual immorality, but that's still greed. And it's collusion with the powers of darkness. So we have to learn to see the spiritual reality. We have to learn to see the thing behind the thing in any given circumstance and not just what's right in front of us. Next set of verses, 8 to 14. Paul says, For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Disobedient here just means those who are colluding with the dark forces, those who are doing the deeds of darkness. It's shameful to mention even what they do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, and then he quotes probably an early Christian hymn Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So, Paul gives two reasons here, two clarifying reasons why the behaviors mentioned above are inappropriate for believers. One is that they're inconsistent with our spirit given identity. Like, our spirit given identity, which was purchased by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is that we've been adopted into God's family. God is light, and therefore, we are children of light. And therefore, we are supposed to reflect the qualities and the character of our Heavenly Father. And so when we participate in the deeds of darkness, we're acting in a way that is inconsistent with our own spiritual identity. So in a way, we are embraced. sin is embracing a false self, in a sense. The other thing that he points out, is that these deeds are fruitless. He calls them uh, the fruitless deeds of darkness in verse 11. They're fruitless, meaning they don't actually benefit anyone. So what, like, whatever momentary pleasure or whatever happiness or comfort or security or whatever, like whatever I think I'm getting out of the deed of darkness that's positively impacting my life, Paul says, it's not. Not in any way that actually matters, Not in the sense of the thing behind the thing. It's not benefiting you in the spiritual realm. It's not benefiting your spiritual life. And that's the more important reality. So the, the deeds done in collusion with the powers of darkness, they can only hurt us and others in the spiritual sense. Anything other than obedience to Christ can only hurt us and others in the spiritual sense. So the point is that we are children of light. Like we have been enlightened, not by attaining enlightenment, but by receiving it through the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit has opened the eyes of our hearts. This is what Paul prays for them in chapter 1, that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to behold the hope that God offers us, the glory of the plans that God has for us and for his world, and to the power that God has exercised on our behalf. The same power which Paul says raised Jesus from the dead. So our calling then is to oppose the forces of darkness in the world, not to participate with them. We are called to participate in the ways in which God, through the Spirit, is acting upon the world, not in what the powers of darkness are doing in the world. So Paul says rather than partaking in what darkness is doing in the world, we are to expose what darkness is doing in the world and partake in what the Spirit is doing in the world. Which brings us to the heart of this passage. Because if we're going to be able to perceive the spiritual reality, like if we're going to be able to see the thing behind the thing so that we can be aware of it and responsive to it, then something has to happen to us. And I think Paul calls that something being filled with the spirit. So now we're into the heart of our text, Galatians 5, starting, in fifth, or uh, Ephesians five, excuse me, starting in verse 15. Be very careful then. How you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Just notice the contrast then with the foolish, the foolish talking that he talked about before. Foolish talking, coarse joking, power of darkness. Instead, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to the Father through everything. Now, thanksgiving contrasts with greed. Because now it's, now it's the realization, I didn't do this for myself, acquire this for myself, earn it for myself, get it. Whatever is mine was given to me by God. That's the spiritual reality. And so I'm going to thank God for it. He says, Thanking the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the submit to one another contrasts with the sexual immorality from the verses before. Because outside of a marriage covenant and a worshipful act to God, sex is by nature, uh, well, not by nature, I shouldn't say it that way, uh, sex becomes perverted, and it, there's always something in it that's exploitative. Like, there's always something, there's always a power dynamic at play in immoral sexual situations where one person is using the other person. And that's greed, it's idolatry. And so, Paul is going to contrast that with submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, serving one another, and taking the lower seat. He talks about the same thing in Philippians 2. So let's talk about what he means when he says be filled with the Spirit. I want to zero in on the verb, be filled, plero, in the Greek. There's four things that we can learn about this just from observing this one word. Uh, So the verb plero, be filled, is four things. The first thing it is, is it's imperative. It's in the imperative mood, which means it's a command. So this is Paul's instruction this is his imperative. This is his command. This is God's command to us through Paul. Be filled with the Spirit. The second thing we notice is that it's plural. It's plural. So it might be better translated, y'all be filled with the Spirit. Like it's not just you be filled with the Spirit, you individual, it's y'all be filled with the Spirit. In other words, y'all's church body, y'all's community, y'all's families, y'all's relationships. Be filled with the Spirit. Um, so, yeah, it's not just about our individual relationships with God. It's about what's happening in our church body, in our church community. The third thing this verb is, is it's passive. It's a passive verb. So Paul is not saying, fill yourself with the Spirit. He's saying, be filled with the Spirit. So I'm the passive agent, and the Spirit is acting upon me to indwell me and then fill me and empower me. And the last, the, the fourth thing is that the verb is continual. It's continual, which means it's not a one and done thing. It's not like a, I got filled with the spirit and now I'm filled with the spirit forever. This is an ongoing process. It's moment by moment. And so I think if you synthesize all of that with other stuff that you learn from Paul's writings, I think that what, when Paul says, be filled with the spirit, it's his way of saying this. Live in a constant state of awareness of and responsiveness to the presence, power, and prompting of God through the Spirit. I think that's at least something close to what he means. Live in a constant state of awareness of and responsiveness to the presence, the power, and the prompting of God through the Holy Spirit. So if that's what we're being called to do, if the call before us this morning to be filled with the Spirit, involves becoming the kinds of people who live with a moment-to-moment awareness of the ways that, in which God is present and revealing His power and leading us in the world, then what are the things that are going to stand in our way? What are the things that keep us from getting there? The first two I'll mention because they always get mentioned in sermons on this passage, and they also come from the writings of Paul. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5:15 that we can quench the spirit. We can quench the spirit. By which he means uh, we can shush the spirit. Like we can ignore the spirit's prompting. And you've done this, I've done this. This is like when you're in the argument and you're about to say the thing. And you know that you shouldn't say the thing. You know it's not a kind thing to say. Um, you know it's motivated by anger. And there's a voice in the back of your head, isn't there, that goes, "Mm, pump the brakes, slow the tape, and you don't do it. You blow right through it and say the thing anyway. Say the mean thing, the hurtful thing. You've shushed the Spirit. Um, Another thing that we can do, Paul writes in, in Ephesians 4, Jake talked about this last week, you can grieve the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. Grieving the Spirit involves living in unrepentant sin. Living in unrepentant sin. So in other words, my lifestyle is a lifestyle of collusion with the powers of darkness, and I'm unwilling to consider any other alternative reality. (laughs) Like, I'm unwilling to consider the reality of the Spirit of God. I am blind to alternative moral worlds. Like, I am set in my ways and decided. And I'm living in this behavioral pattern, which Paul says is immoral. That, Paul says, grieves the spirit, which indicates to us that the spirit is not a force. The spirit is a person. And when the New Testament authors speak of the Holy Spirit, they speak of the Holy Spirit Spirit as a personality who does things and says things and feels things. Um, Especially in Paul. Paul, this is an interesting aside. Paul mentions the Holy Spirit in his writings in the New Testament. Paul mentions the Holy Spirit more than the entire Old Testament does. Like, Paul is obsessed. He's obsessed with the Holy Spirit. So he says, we can quench the Spirit, we can shush the Spirit, we can ignore the Spirit's voice. And we also grieve the Spirit when we live in a state of unrepentant sin or a state of blindness to an alternative moral world. Because that's precisely what the Spirit is trying to deliver us from. And so it grieves the Spirit when we insist on living that way. But here's, here's something that, that I sort of came to as I was studying for this. Because I was trying to go, okay, like, what, like what's actually the biggest obstacle to this in my life? What's actually the biggest obstacle? Like what's, what's actually the biggest thing in my life that's keeping me from interacting with the Holy Spirit? Um, And I think that thing for me, and maybe this is the thing for you, we'll talk about this a little bit. I think that thing for me is just sort of a baseline state of inattentiveness and hurry. I think that's what keeps me from experiencing moment-to-moment awareness of the Holy Spirit. More than anything else, I think that what keeps me from experiencing moment-to-moment awareness of the Spirit is just that I operate with a baseline of inattentiveness and hurry. And I I doubt that I'm alone in that. Um, Dallas Willard called hurry the great enemy of spiritual life. He said we must ruthlessly eliminate it from our lives. Um, Why? Because it leaves no, no time in our schedules for contemplation. Like we just go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, bang, bang, bang with no margin, we overload ourselves with responsibilities and we eat up all the time in our schedules and we don't leave any time for contemplation, we don't leave any time for enjoying the presence of God, we don't leave any time for prayer, for meditation, for these sorts of things. And on top of that, all of us have a smartphone which was designed by thousands of brilliant people, resourced by billions of dollars to captivate your attention and form your behavior. And so I'm going, okay, I don't know how to compete with that, honestly. And on top of that, I have attention deficit disorder. I'm like, I'm toast. Like, I have no chance at winning. I I mean, the more I think about this, the more I really see it as just a fight for my attention. Um, So in case you're wondering, am I in the same boat, is my phone Preventing me from living with a moment-to-moment awareness of the Holy Spirit. I want us to do an exercise together This is a questionnaire. It's an instrument that was developed by Dr. David Greenfield He's the founder of the Center for Internet and Technology Addiction He's an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine So this is 15 questions and I'm gonna read them, and every time you answer yes to one of these questions, just keep a tally. And you don't have to write down on something, you don't want the person next to you to see, You know, keep it in your head, but keep a tally, and then we'll talk about what it means after. So number one, keep a tally for every time you answer yes. Number one, do you find yourself spending more time on your cell phone or smartphone than you realize? Do you find yourself spending more time on your phone than you realize? Number two, do you find yourself mindlessly passing time on a regular basis by staring at your phone? Do you find yourself mindlessly passing time on a regular basis by staring at your phone? Number three, do you seem to lose track of time when on your phone? Do you seem to lose track of time while on your phone? Number four, do you find yourself spending more time texting, tweeting, or emailing? as opposed to talking to people in person? Do you find yourself spending more time communicating with people through your phone than talking with people in person? Next question. Number five, has the amount of time you spend on your cell phone been increasing? Has the amount of time that you spend on your phone been increasing? Number six, do you wish you could be a little less involved with your phone? Do you wish you were a little less involved with your phone? Number seven. Do you sleep with your cell phone or smartphone under your pillow or next to your bed regularly? Do you sleep with your phone under your pillow or next to your bed regularly? Number eight, do you find yourself viewing and answering texts, tweets, and emails at all hours of the day and night, even when it means interrupting other things you are doing? Do you find yourself uh, answering or viewing texts, tweets, or emails at all hours of the night, even when it means interrupting other things you're doing. Number nine, do you text, email, message, post on social media or surf while driving or doing other similar activities that require your focused attention and concentration? Do you use your phone while you're driving to send texts or do you use your phone uh, during other activities that require your focused attention and concentration? Number 10, Do you feel your use of your cell phone decreases your productivity at times? Do you feel that your use of your cell phone decreases your productivity at times? Number 11, we're getting close to the end. Number 11, do you feel reluctant to be without your cell or smartphone even for a short time? Do you feel reluctant to be without your phone even for a short time? Number 12. Do you feel ill at ease or uncomfortable when you accidentally leave your smartphone in the car or at home or have no service or have a broken phone? So if you leave your phone in the car or at home or if you're out of service or if your phone is broken, does that make you feel ill at ease or uncomfortable? Number 13. When you eat meals, is your phone always part of the table place setting? When you eat meals, is your phone sitting on the table? Number 14. Number 14. When your cell or smartphone rings, beeps, or buzzes, do you feel an intense urge to check for texts, tweets, emails, updates, et cetera? So when your phone rings, beeps, or buzzes, do you feel an intense urge to check that notification, yes or no? Last question, number 15. Do you find yourself mindlessly checking your cell or smartphone many times a day? even when you know there's nothing, there's likely nothing new or important to see? Do you find yourself checking your phone mindlessly many times a day, even when you know there's probably nothing new or important to see? Okay, that's 15 questions. Here's how Greenfield interprets these scores, okay? Everybody have your score? I'll tell you what mine was at the end of this. Um, you can laugh at me. So... Here's how he interprets these scores. If you scored one to two, your behavior is normal. If you said yes to one or two of those, your behavior is normal, but that doesn't mean you should live on your phone. If you answered yes to three or four of those, then he says your behavior is leaning toward problematic or compulsive use. If you said yes to three or four. If you said yes to five or more, He says it's likely that you may have a problematic or compulsive phone use pattern. And he says if you scored eight or more, then his recommendation is consider seeing a psychologist who specializes in behavioral addictions. So I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you answered eight or more. Um, I will just follow the example of Jesus and be a representative up here and say, when I first took this diagnostic, I had 13 yeses. 13. I was like, I already see a therapist. I can't get a second therapist to help me deal with this cell phone stuff. And like, that made it painfully clear to me. I was like, this, this is the battleground. Like the, the, the fight for intimacy with God in my life is going to be fought on the battleground of my own ability to pay attention to him. And so I had to take some actions against that uh, this last week and start to really, I mean, I've I've sort of like experimented with putting some boundaries in place around my devices before, but I was like, I've got to take like real decisive, pretty brutal action. So this week I took all my social media apps off my phone. Um, Thank you. I'm so glad you're here. Um, Yeah, uh, I took them off. It's been very weird. It's been very, very weird. Um, I still have my accounts. If I want to look at them, I have to get on the desktop. So I'm I'm taking myself back to where I was in, like, 2010. Um, I'm one of those people who, I'm 30 years old, so that means I remember what it was like to have no social media, and then to have social media, but I had to use it on the family desktop computer. And then I got my own laptop, and I could do social media on that. And then my junior year of college, I got my first iPhone, and then I could get social media on my phone. But I'm kind of the last generation of people who had that experience. The generation after me is growing up with their very first engagement with social media is in an app on a phone. Uh, An app that was designed leveraging a wealth of knowledge in the areas of neuroscience and human psychology and behavioral economics um, in order to create a product that is attention-grabbing and addictive and habit-forming and behavior-changing. And so I'm going, like, I, I, can't, I, just, I can't participate in that. Like, I, I cannot be open to that. And I'm just, I'm just speaking for me right now. Like, you have to talk to the Spirit and decide what you've got to do about your phone or your devices. But I'm just going, like I, like, I cannot, I will be underwater spiritually if I don't take this kind of action, is the way that I started to feel. So those are some obstacles. Those are obstacles that keep us from experiencing the filling of the Spirit, I think. It's quenching or shushing the Spirit. It's grieving the Spirit. It's our baseline state of inattentiveness and hurry, especially if you're like me. So if those are the obstacles, then what are the pathways? So if those are the things that will keep us from being filled with the Spirit, living with this moment-to-moment awareness of God, then what are the pathways? Here's the pathways. The first one is lifestyle adjustments. Lifestyle adjustments. So like I just mentioned, you could establish some boundaries in your relationships with your devices, especially your phone. Um, so for me, it's no social media, no YouTube on my phone, notifications turned off. I use the screen time feature to limit which apps I can use at which time of the day. So I only get text calls, weather's calendar clock from 8 p.m. to noon the next day. And I just decided, like, that's what I need to create some space in my life to interact with the Holy Spirit. Other pathways, um, more spiritual pathways or more directly spiritual pathways, I just have a few. One, memorize scripture. Memorize scripture. It's one thing to read scripture. It's, one, it's a whole other thing to memorize scripture and internalize it and carry scripture with you wherever you go because I think the Holy Spirit begins to use scripture to speak to us when we do that um, and in any given circumstance. Uh, communicating with God throughout the day. Set up, set up prayer times throughout the day, morning, noon, night or maybe we did a thing at a church I used to go to where we had like a little timer that went off every hour and you just pray for a minute every hour. Those sorts of things can be very, very helpful in helping us develop a moment-to-moment awareness of the presence of God. Next thing I would recommend is contemplation and even meditation, especially mindfulness meditation. Um, Contemplation is really important. Like I noticed that like in my personal prayer life, the the way that I primarily used to pray was like, I, I would go through, like, you know, the, the adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, the ACTS acronym, right? And of course, I'd spend most time on confession because, <laughs> like, I better say I'm sorry for all these sins if I want God to actually do anything for me. And so I would spend a lot of time, that was, i would be a little insincere, I would spend a lot of time, like, dwelling on my sin and my failures, and then a lot of time, like, asking God to do stuff for me in spite of that. And I, I left no time in my prayer life for just actually enjoying and experiencing the presence of God. And so I've tried to incorporate that. I also do spiritual journaling, asking myself questions. When did I feel closest to to God today? Why? When did I feel furthest from God? Why? What brought me joy today? Why? What hurt me? Why? What does all this reveal to me? Um, Also, sharing with one another what the Spirit is doing in our lives. Because this is what takes it from being an individual thing to a community thing, is when we actually share it with one another, talk about what the Spirit's doing, and when we confess sin to one another so that we can remind one another of the most important reality. And the most important reality is that God has acted upon our world in the person of Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection and through the power of the Holy Spirit is vacuuming us up into God's family as his adopted and dearly loved children. That's the most important reality. God loves us, Jesus Christ has saved us, and the Holy Spirit is in us. So I'm going to close now. So recommended books. I just have a few that I want to recommend that could be really helpful to you as you're trying to cultivate some of this stuff. The first book, I've recommended this book more than any other book um, in preaching, but it's Charles Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll, Flying Closer to the Flame. Incredible introductory book on the Holy Spirit. Changed my life second book is a little bit more technical, but it's short. It's Michael Reeves' Delighting in the Trinity. Delighting in the Trinity. Fantastic book. Will change the way you think about God for the better. And then the last one is a very short, classic, classic book by Brother Lawrence. He's a 17th century English monk. It's uh, called—French monk, actually. It's called The Practice of the Presence of God. The Practice of the Presence of God. And there's absolute gems in here for cultivating spiritual intimacy with God. The last one I recommend uh, is, um, it's called Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport, and that's not a Christian book, but that will help you understand and attack some of the issues that have to do with technology. I wanna leave you now with just this last verse from Jesus, from John 7. Here's Jesus' invitation to us. uh, John writes, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So God's desire for our church is that each of us would be aware of and responsive to the presence and the power and the prompting of God so that all of us would participate in the work that God is doing in the world. That's water. That's the most important reality. So each of us came here from somewhere, and each of us came in this morning in some way, and I don't know like the particular circumstances of your life um, or of your emotional or spiritual state, but wherever you came from this morning or however you came in, I just want to invite you to pray with me, and I'm going to ask the Father to fill you with the Holy Spirit. So I want to invite you to... Ask that of the Father along with me. Father in heaven, we are, um, we are just so lost without you. We don't stand a chance without your guidance. And so I ask that you would fill each of us in this room this morning, and all of us who uh, are on Zoom, all of us together, fill us and fill our church, fill our body with the Holy Spirit. Help us to be a vibrant community, a spirit-filled community that is known by faith, hope, and love. Uh, Help us to be more aware of your presence, your power, and your prompting in our lives. Help us to follow you as you create us into the people who you always meant for us to be. We ask in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.